Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're taking a slower pace, a calmer pace, but we're still chasing monsters. Our guest is Verity Holloway, whose novel, The Others of Edenwell, is out now from Titan Books. It's a tale of male bond in the shadow of war, where the grounds of a home front hospital can be just as terrifying as the trenches overseas. It's possibly my first foray into the First World War on this podcast, and Verity and I talk about her family connection to the story, her physical connection to the hospital setting, and her inspirations in the literature of the time. We also discuss cryptozoology, ghost stories, and why German helmets have such a creepy design. It's been a hell of a week here at Talking Scared, what with the whole Stephen King endorsement. Massive thanks to him, Stephen, if you're listening, and a big hello to any and all new listeners. Verity's soothing voice may be just the thing we all need to settle our nerves. And remember, if you enjoy Talking Scared, you can always get more by subscribing as a patron. Go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, where a few dollars a month will get you hours and hours of bonus content. People seem to like it, and the new patrons include Emily, Beige, Katrina, KC, Mary, Witchy Fingers, Valerie, Larry, Mark, Zhao, Morgan, Kevin, and Jenny Penny. Thanks all, you're helping keep the wheels turning, and you're keeping Ted in dog treats. But everyone, come with me to an idyllic retreat in the midst of carnage. It may be far from the front, but the terror has never been nearer. Let's talk scared. Hi Verity, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am very, very hot. Yeah. Right now, Britain is sweltering. It's a sticky one. Yeah. Whereabouts in the country are you? I'm in Suffolk. So yes, very MR James, but very dry at the moment, more sort of dune. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's not, I know that the northeast coast of America right now has an atmosphere akin to Saturn, but, but we Brits cannot handle dune being this hot. No, no, not, not in my, uh, my Victorian two up, two down. It's, uh, it's inhumane. Yeah. You know what? At least this unusual British summer is the perfect backdrop to your book, which is about a decidedly unusual British summer. Your novel is called The Others of Edenwell. And, well, it's a far more complex thing than I'd expected. Really layered and multifaceted. And I described it elsewhere as Pet Cemetery, as written by E.M. Forster. (laughs) I want that on a t-shirt. That's great. (laughs) So do I know you said that. Yeah. But I mean, that merely scratches the topsoil of what's going on in this book. So can you set the scene a little? Tell us what we need to know about The Others of Edenwell. Uh, So The Others of Edenwell, it is 1917 and World War One is uh, raging on. But we're actually in Norfolk. We're not at the front. Um, We're at Edenwell Hydropathic Resort. And a hydropathic resort was kind of a wellness uh, 
they use the word hospital. Um, I'm using that word very, very loosely. Uh, you would go to rest and recuperate using the, the power of healing water. And Edenwell is built on a medieval shrine, um, an underground spring. And uh, there we meet Freddie, Freddie Ferry, who is the caretaker's young son. And he's too unwell to go off and fight in World War One, uh, but he's not particularly interested in it. He's happy enough to just talk to the birds and make his art. But that's until a new guest arrives at the hydropathic. His name is Eustace Moncrief, and he's a bit of a troublemaker. He's desperate to go to war, and his wealthy family have sent him to Edenwell to try and get him invalided out, much to his annoyance. Right. So what you've done there quite interestingly, is eschew any of the weird stuff that goes down in this book. Yeah, I'm not very good at summarising my own stuff. I, I instantly forget ever having written it. So. <laughs> no, but, it, but it, it makes an interesting start to the conversation because it, it, it kind of conceptually sets up the nature of the book and probably the nature of this conversation. I, I'm going to preload a little of this conversation with a nod to the horror elements because... There's so much more to talk about, but I don't want to do my genre-centric listeners a disservice. So let's start with the fact that it's a slippery thing, this book. Would you call it a ghost story, a monster story? Would you call it folk horror? Do any of those descriptors fit well enough for your liking? Well, it's interesting that you should say a monster story because you're the first person to say that to me. And I think that's the one that is most comfortable for me. Mm. Um, I, I didn't set out to write folk horror or a ghost story. I, I never set out with a particular genre in mind. I just go with my little obsessions. And um, I always saw it almost as cryptozoology, <laughs> cryptozoology come ghost story. I mean, that's my two favourite words put together into a neologism. That's I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a cryptid nerd, so yeah, that that appeals to me. <laughs> the reason I said monster, and I'm going to sort of purposely not get too into it because one of the beautiful ambiguities of the book is what what is the actual menace. But I'm in the middle right now when this episode comes out of a kind of Stephen King fix. So I had. Mike Flanagan on the show talking about all of his ad adaptations. and I, I, Your episode is being released in the middle, I think, of a double episode where I deep dive into Stephen King's It. Oh, nice. Have you read It? Yes. <laughs> so, listeners, this is not me crowbarring it into a conversation, I promise. I told it far <laughs> too much verity. But basically, one of the things that I liked about Your Monster is it had, it had shades of Pennywise in the fact that it appears differently to the Observer. Yeah, that's that's a good point, actually. Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the the creature in Edenwell is I wanted it to make people painfully aware of their own insecurity mm -hmm. in a time when stiff upper lip was, I mean, it was not only a social norm, it was very much uh, policed. There was the uh, Defence of the Realm Act and there were people who were uh, arrested and menaced by the police for making little lighthearted jokes about, you know, the war, coping mechanisms, you know. But people's paranoia and people's insecurities were really simmering away in mm. 1917. So that's what I wanted to play with. 
but yeah it is a kind of ephemeral beast this thing it, it, it's slippery both in the characters interactions with it are quite slippery and it's it's slippery in the novel as well and it it, it seems to represent an awful lot of things. I think you, as a, as, as a reader, you can bring kind of what you want to that creature. I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the really memorable gothic monsters have that element that they're endlessly malleable, mutable menaces, you know? Yeah, I like to have creatures or ghosts or paranormal entities that are quite ambiguous and that if it was you who was in the novel trying to explain to someone I experienced this that person could then come back to you and say well you were drunk it was dark dot (laughs) dot dot and you'd be utterly infuriated because you would know what you had just experienced but there's not the language to get that across yeah Yes. The the creature who I absolutely love when we first properly see him, he looks like a German soldier with a spiked helmet. And as you say, you know, he kind of represents insecurities, anxieties. And both of these boys have got their own anxieties about not going to war. Um, so that makes sense. But there's this brilliant moment. So he's got a German helmet with a spiked helmet. right? So he's a German soldier, rather, with a spiked helmet. And you write how he grabs this spike and the spike slid, quote, from the dark dome of the German's head. At first, it appeared to be extending, yet the slide was seemingly endless. Longer and longer, it grew, chased by a pulsing jet of black fluid. And at last, the long spike shudders free from the German's skull, a great knotted club, the length of a man's spine. So he pulls this thing out of his body like a sword. And it's such a shocking, grisly, kind of unique image that I have to ask, do you remember how that came to you? Um, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I find those helmets terrifying. I, th- I, I can't pronounce the German, but I think they're called Pickelhaubs. Um, like pick as in ice mm-hmm. pick um, I find them absolutely terrifying and I always have I was taken to a lot of museums as a child and those and suits of armour always just viscerally frightened me just being in the room with them so I wanted to include them and they're such an odd style choice like why why do you have a spike coming out of your head what is that supposed to communicate um, so yeah I just had him sort of tear it out of his own spine (laughs) i mean you're saying that very kind of flippantly but it's such a visual it's just a striking visual image that i haven't come across before obviously but but like the nature of it it's just so grisly it's like something from a clive barker story (laughs) oh thanks (laughs) couldn't be more different than the general tone of what you're writing i think that's why it hit me so hard it's like the first moment of true unadulterated horror in the novel I just thought it was brilliant. It really did. That, yeah, that's the one image I've taken away from this. Oh, thank you. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, regardless of his nature, whether it's ghost, demon, monster, cryptid, whatever, he, he flits in and out of proceedings. And there are times where for pages and pages of this book, I forgot I was reading nominally a horror novel or even a genre novel, you know, because so much of this book is focused on the daily lives of the characters and the horror of this encroaching war. And that's why I said your your synopsis was interesting because it, it kind of reaffirms that. But I do wonder, because you're published by Titan, who are emphatically a, a genre press. 
Um, was that slow burning approach a problem ever, either for them or, or for you as the writer? Oh, um, I don't think it ever has been, actually. I was paired with Dan Carpenter, mm-hmm. um, who I've I've actually known for quite a long time, and he and I have very similar tastes. His editorial notes, he, t- he tends to write sort of, ha-ha, this is disgusting, thank you for the nightmares. Um, <laughs> and so I really click with him. Um, but he also did appreciate the genre issue and like you say that the the creature does disappear and comes back and disappears and comes back and you're never quite sure like what even his rules for existence are and we wanted to keep that quite gothically vague you know they say gothic mm-hmm. hand waving um so it was never a problem for Titan, which was lovely because usually I write something that's a bit across genre lines and then you have to try and sell it and then you you hit a brick wall. <laughs> yeah. Another Titan book that I think it pairs with beautifully for reasons I'll come back to in a while um, is Ali Wilkes' All the White Spaces. Um, yes. And, and Ali's sort of... I know Ali quite well now, and and I told her you were coming on the show, and she was she was very excited by it because it, it does <laughs> feel like your books are both doing that thing where they are invoking the supernatural into a world that is already horrible enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was writing this, I kept reminding myself what I don't want to do is be the person who shows up and says, "Oh, what does World War One need? An element mm. of horror." <laughs> I really didn't want to do that. And hopefully I I haven't, you know, mm-hmm. trodden in that particular <laughs> cesspit. Um, but I, I'm absolutely obsessed with the history. And I went through a phase oh, about 10 years ago where I was completely and utterly consumed by World War One for no apparent reason. I did just, I was very, very interested. And I collected so much information and so many anecdotes i like people's anecdotes rather than you know battle statistics mm-hmm. and i was thinking i don't know where to put all of this horror i don't know how that generation what they did with it i kind of get what you mean because a lot of the literature of the time either emphatically took it on you know hemingway or the different war but you know what i mean um mm. Or like Graves took it on. Um, but a lot of the literature eschewed it or came at it from the margins in, in a way that, that you do. It occurred to me that the title is quite ambiguous because it's called The Others, plural of Edenwell, um, which doesn't seem to apply easily to the singular thing that's haunting the woods. And I wonder, could it have other meanings? Who are the Others of Edenwell? Uh, Yes. So it was actually, it came about because of a propaganda poster that I just stared at. I I had such a huge collection of these things and this one really stood out to me. Um, It was by the Parliamentary Recruiting Committee and it said in all caps, so like yelling at you, there are three types of men, those who hear the call and obey those who delay and the others capitalised, to which do you belong? And I thought that was just such an insidious message Mm. of, I mean, literally othering 
men who couldn't go or didn't want to go, making this very much a you're with us or you're against us. And that got me thinking about Freddie and Eustace's queerness and disability and all these things that make you other within that very rigid society where something utterly unprecedented is happening and the civilians don't have all of the information. So they're making these very um, quite brutal statements about people whose circumstances they don't know. I found that eerie. So that was the title that we ended up with. That There were a few potential titles, but we, we kept coming back to that one. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons that the book surprised me with what it actually was compared to what I imagined, because I thought you'd basically written a story about a hospital with monsters in the woods that were going to go out and kill everybody. You know, the others at Edenwell. It felt like a, yeah, yeah. it was going to be like, a, like, oh, they're just things in the woods. And in fact, it's much more of a, of a you know, a metaphor, whatever, a social commentary, whatever you want to call it. Because, yeah, everyone in this book is othered from each other like there's the queerness as you say there is the disability there's the soldiers and the non-soldiers who can't really understand each other it's, it is a very very clever title um and it it, it tees up the book in, in a surprising way oh thank you i i'd i'd wanted to say that um freddie and eustace and well all of them they don't really belong in this world but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be sacrificed on this on this altar it doesn't matter that they don't especially belong you know they're mm. still bodies and bodies can be sent off to do the state's bidding and um i i just found that such a a tragedy about the war and and going back to that comp i made about em forster and pet cemetery that's not just me being a smart ass because this book, to me, really does have strong echoes of modernist fiction. And and a quick aside for readers who haven't been bored to death by lecturers like I have, the, the, the modernist period is basically roughly 1900 to 1930, and it's epitomised by writers like Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and T.S. Eliot, who were doing all sorts of experimentation with, with literature. But there was another strand of authors like E.M. Forster and Catherine Manson and D.H. Lawrence who wrote slightly more digestible stories, often about art and sensation and this quiet kind of eroticism. And it, it felt to me like that was very much the milieu you were working in. Are you inspired by that kind of writing? Um, yeah, I have an interesting relationship with the modernists because I'm really more of a Victorianist. Like they, they say in academia, you're either one or the other. <laughs> yeah. um, but I like, I mean, I love Virginia Woolf. I love Edith Sitwell. And um, Edith Sitwell's war poems are fascinating to me. She talks about um, bombs falling on London in the Second World War mm -hmm. in terms of the, the crash of the hammer driving the nails into Christ's wounds. And that has stayed with me since yeah, I read it. Yeah, there's a metaphor to play with, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like you've got this very real inescapable violence and then she takes it somewhere metaphysical mm -hmm. and I think that's that's a fascination that I've hopefully brought to Edenwell anyway. It often felt that you weren't just setting Edenwell in that late Edwardian early modernist period mid-modernist period it actually felt like you're often I don't want to say mimicking it sounds too cheap a word um sort of evoking the, the language and style of that 
literary period. Certainly in 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 um, Freddy, your protagonist's kind of raw artistic awakening, which is a subplot and a frame narrative of this story, that felt very modernist. I'm I'm really pleased that you mentioned his uh, his art because he's well he's slightly inspired by Henry Darger. Um, some people pronounce it Henry Darger. I actually don't know which one, but he. Um, was the same generation and he was an artist who was working secretly um he was very very reclusive and no one found his work until he died um but he digested all of the war literature mm-hmm. and art and he created his own fantasy war called the realms of the unreal and it was this epic it comes to something like a million words and he also painted it um but I'm much more interested in the words and the anecdotes of the people who lived through it than battle statistics, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so I did want to get that voice. I also read, um, so Wilfred Owen, the war poet, his brother Harold wrote a series of um, memoirs after the war. And he has he has a very particular voice and he had an absolutely dreadful war. He caught just every disease imaginable and it's astonishing he didn't die. But his voice as well, it's very forthright and very earthy, but also he doesn't know where to put this trauma and he also turned to art he was a he was a painter and he ended up burning everything oh wow wow you can yeah the, 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 there's a lot of trauma in the artists at that time weren't there a lot of a lot of violent acts towards their own creations yeah yeah the flip side of it the modernist stylistic experimentation and and all the slipstream stuff and what they did which i don't really get on with i, I just i kind of need a plot you know, <laughs> you know what i mean it's, yeah yeah give me a plot and and that's why mm. i think i liked your books i had all of that sensory stuff that the modernists do so all, all that psychological interiority but it had a plot as well and it had real characters who were like flesh and blood that you can care for one of the things that really makes you care is this relationship that develops between Freddy and Eustace. That feels strongly of that era of fiction. Because to quote, you know, the famous thing by Lord Alfred Douglas, you know, it's a love that dare not speak its name. And it is beautiful how you put it across because it's so subtle. But what was the kind of functional importance of a queer love story to this novel? Um, it came very naturally. Like I, I said earlier, with reading war literature, I, I tended to gravitate more towards the, the queer writers and the modernists, you know, there's, there's gosh, so many. Um, but their relationship, when I first started drafting the novel, I was very keen on it being a, a straightforward folie de. So I wanted it to be the, the madness of two. And it's two people who are so close and so entrenched with each other that they're actually within their own capsule world. And I ended up toning that down a little bit. I hope that some of it is still there, but I wanted it to be more of a naturalistic to very, very different young people who probably don't have the vocabulary yet for what they're experiencing in terms of their uh, devotion to each other. And the the whole passionate friendships thing of the Edwardian period is um, 
it's so fascinating because there were romances that were um, classified as passionate friendships. There were also mm. literally just friendships who were, you know, we're we're comrades and I'll die for you and you'll die for me. Um, and I really love the different uh, the different shades of love there. If that makes sense, yeah. it really does. Yeah, I remember being taught. It's one of the, you know you get you get taught these certain things that just never leave you. They just they just cling to your brain for some reason. I remember being taught the theory of the homosocial bond by Eve Kosovsky Sedgwick, I believe, is the the theorist, um, and and she talks about exactly that that the bond that is ambiguous in its nature. And she points to people like Holmes and Watson, you know these these great male double acts in in late. Victorian early Edwardian fiction where they're either read these days as metaphors for something more or they were Trojan horses for a, a queer subculture mm. uh, and I, that's one of the things that I love about that that period of of literature the that the, the slippage between like you say different kinds of love uh, yeah, I, I I always think of Alfred Lord Tennyson writing in memoriam, mm-hmm. and uh, it's in terms of poetry, it's just a huge piece of Victorian furniture. You know, it's it's in memoriam. Everyone knows that one, but it was about his relationship with this dearly, dearly beloved friend, and they would hold hands as they went around together. And there was a point in Victorian society where men could do that within certain very, very narrow parameters and it being perceived as their beloved friends. And then, of course, he died and he wrote this huge memorial poem to him on the nature of grief. And I'm going off on a tangent here. I could talk about all this all day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here we go. I'll give you a a way back into the the horror conversation that I've taken us away from. Because at the same time, you know, back in the, the First World War years that we have all this high art modernism, the overlapping Edwardian period is a uniquely spooky few decades because we have, you know, great ghost story writers like M.R. James and E.F. Benson and uh, I don't know, Oliver Onions, William Hope Hodgson, people like that. Was any of that an influence on your writing? Um, not consciously, but I do. I absolutely love M.R. James. I'm a huge M.R. James fan. Um, every single Christmas, my partner and I sit down and we watch the, uh, the box set with Christopher yeah. Lee. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, it's just, it's, it's absolutely beloved to me. Um, and I was very much aware of pulp ghost stories, things that Eustace and Freddie would have been aware of, if not fans of. I think actually Freddie talks about uh, Penny Dreadfuls, which by then were a bit old fashioned, but they were kind of the kind of things that were passed down uh, to the younger children and, you know, deeply inappropriately. (laughs) They were very, very bloody. So that's kind of entrenched in me, I think, really. So it seems to me like I'm imposing this thing on this book, right? I, I seem insistent on telling you that you're inspired by the modernists and the literature of the era. So maybe you've just kind of unintentionally or inadvertently done a, just a great ventriloquist job of, of evoking the period that you're writing in so authentically that I've been convinced you're doing it kind of consciously, you know, because <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll draw a line under it, but it really does feel like you are not just setting this book in this era, but writing in the style of fiction from that era. Um, so I'll just say that and leave it there. That's what I think anyway. <laughs> 
That's that's great though. That's great. Let's go with that. Anything that makes <laughs> me seem competent, you know. <laughs> I say about the Edwardian period being spooky. And one of the reasons I find it so spooky, and I think must be so difficult a thing for an historical novelist like yourself to do, is is evoke that period. I mean, there's a, a, some framing text that opens the book where a, a contemporary historian is is writing about Freddy, your your main character, uh, and the quote is that we believe that we know the world in which he lived. Half blind, we squint into it each November on Armistice Day and convince ourselves we can see. And that's exactly how I feel about it, about that that First World War and pre-war era. Like, it's a world we recognise, but it's at the same time so incredibly different and distant from us. Do you see what I mean? That's how it feels like a unique period in history that is both modern and ancient. Yes, and... It's something that I find really intriguing every year at Armistice Day, how World War I is um, portrayed, mm. uh, because I can remember being a teenager and it was very much fashionable to say, you know, this was a, a completely pointless waste of life. And now there's a bit more of a push to say, oh, it was for our freedom. And I think, mm. what freedom exactly? Can you can you itemize the freedoms that were involved in World War I? Um, so I'm very aware that the past is viewed through a lens and the lens is always coloured or held by someone else. Also, actually, um, there is a documentary by Peter Jackson where he colorized and added dialogue to original footage of men. Yeah. Is it called They Shall Not Grow Old or something That's like that? That's the one. That's the one. I watched that about three times back to back while I was writing Edenwell because it just shook me so deeply to mm. see these men pointing at the camera and saying, Hey, look, we're on telly. And it's like it was it was a hundred years ago, and they're saying yeah. exactly the same silly stuff that we say now when we see a TV camera in the street. So I wanted the people to seem realistic in a historical sense, but I also wanted to really draw attention to the fact that people don't change mm. quite often for the worse i think as well in, in what we're seeing in what's coming around again now the yeah. world's got, got a distinctly 1930s feel about it right now very much so yeah yeah um well you know what i've held up talking about the war until now and so I, I can really get into it so here goes because i think this is possibly i'm losing track but possibly the first time we've talked about the so-called great war on this podcast um, and usually I, I would just ask you you know why you chose to write about it but there are references that I've seen in, in your tweets in your dedication that this is a, quite a personal story for you is, is that correct? Yeah I ended up dedicating the novel to my three cousins um, Edward, Fred and Bill they were brothers who were all killed together uh, literally together at Gallipoli and they're the only known set of three brothers who all died simultaneously in in World War One. Oh my god I mean that I know it's an obvious thing to say I mean what what can you say to that that isn't obvious but that is grief on a scale that I can't even begin to get my head around. Uh, yeah and their uh their brother-in-law was also killed 
with them at exactly the same time. So it was just the entire male line was just wiped out in one go. At the, at the famous disaster of Gallipoli? Yeah. Wow. Right. So have you always been aware of that? Is that a thing you found out in the research? I mean, how did you come to write this story with that in mind? I've only been aware of that for a few years, actually. Um, and it was because um, my grandfather was a uh, an amateur genealogist and mm. he uh, he unearthed some photographs of the three young men. They were in their 20s when they died. Um, and having the photographs, I know it's a terrible thing to say because a name should have the same emotional resonance, but you know what I mean? Looking into people's eyes is a very, mm. very eerie thing. And um, I wanted to put their names on the book. I mean, it's sentimental, but um, I wanted to remind myself as well that it's it's not entirely fiction these people did all go off and you know didn't come back alive or entirely sane yeah i mean the, the same thing happened to me recently actually in that i've always known that my grandmother's brother died in a japanese prisoner of war camp oh, I've, I've always known that but it's only recently that that has meant anything more than you know basically like a character from history dies it's weird it's it's hit me recently as I've got older that God, like her brother, and I imagined her grief for the first time rather than him just being an abstract concept. I could imagine her grief. Um, and it is weird. Like you see, you look into the eyes and you see the photos and the names and it, it does make a difference. It's, it's such a strange psychological thing, like the, 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 the two wars. Cause they, they are, like I say, they're so distant, but so, so in some ways so close and still so at the center of our culture it's a it's a weird uncanny haunting thing that i don't think any of us that were born after it really know quite how to reconcile no no i do agree one of the things that you really drive home in this story and it's another similarity to ali wilkes all the white spaces is this awful myth of glory you know your two books are a kind of tag team of of text dissecting the myth that we sell to young men. Um, that felt like a key ingredient in this story, this this false myth of what the war is. Uh, yeah, getting back to the, the creature, I wanted mm. the creature to be very much um, the embodiment of the propaganda that was around. Um, so I took a lot of inspiration from propaganda art um you'll you'll know the the famous one with the the hun he's like king kong basically yeah. uh with the fangs and um i have a few originals actually of um culture with a k the idea of german culture it's coming to annihilate and it was always shown as a monk a skeleton monk and he's uh, he's drinking blood from a goblet and it's really kind of schlocky hammer horror stuff but this was everywhere for years and you can imagine what that did to people psyches and to people's anxieties so I wanted to bring that in but I also wanted it contrasted with the idea of the um the beautiful unsullied British Tommy who would you know go out and he would fight evil and he would not get dirty you never see them dirty in these uh, pieces of propaganda and it was almost Arthurian Eustace in particular he believes in this deeply 
Yeah, because there's, there's one... So there's a character we haven't mentioned yet. So Eustace and Freddy are... Just to clarify, Eustace is is the, 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 the sort of... One of a better word, the rich kid who's been sent to the, the, the spa... Yeah. To hopefully be by his mother wants him invalided out of the war, so he but he's desperate to go. And then there's Freddie, who is the caretaker's son, who basically has has been told he can't go to war because of his physical ailments. Um, and the third part of this is a character called Skull, who yeah, Nick Skull. Yeah, Nick Skull, who hasn't. There are things to find out about Nick Skull that I won't go into. You can if you choose, but I won't. There are there are ambiguities to him. But um, he has an amputated leg. And at one point, Freddie and Eustace are talking about how Skull lost his leg at the front. And Freddie points out that the leg chafes him. And Eustace says, you can't talk like that. That's reducing heroism to the mundane. You're supposed to do the opposite. Uh, yeah, that, that's such. It, it's such a sort of quite chilling concept that we. It gets so weirdly towards like nineteen eighty four. You know, double speak. You can't even admit the reality of an in- impairment and a disability because it seems as some way disloyal to the narrative. Yeah, and without giving anything away, um, Skull is delighted by his wound. He loves yeah. that thing. Um, it's such a symbol of heroism and of manliness. Um, So he couldn't be more happy with it. And Eustace just falls into that trap straight away. But it's like he says, you know, you can't talk about pain. You can't talk about um, infirmity. It has to be in terms of, you know, what a magnificent sacrifice. Again, because of things you find out, I think Skull is perhaps the closest thing the novel has to a human villain. And though he does some pretty reprehensible things later on, perhaps the worst thing he does is knowing what he knows, he still perpetuates this law of the front, this this ode to glory. You know, he's convincing Eustace that he should go to war, even though he knows that really he shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that Skull is a deeply miserable, repressed Mm. man and he wants other people to be deeply miserable as well. And the way that he does that is by putting on a smile and saying, come along now, boys, I've been. Mm. Why don't you go? And um, I did come across that attitude quite a bit when I was doing primary research and I found that more chilling than anything, actually. Yeah, very much. I mean, you can sort of understand it in some cases, you know, like I wouldn't agree with it, but you can get the psychology of someone who's been through horror and they're looking at somebody who, for good or not, avoided that trauma. You can see where the bitterness would come from. But in Skull's particular case, it's such an abhorrent thing to be doing. Yeah. You know, and you include quite a few moments of this quite strange eroticism between Eustace and Skull. Like, Skull dresses Eustace in his own uniform, and there's lots of him kneeling down in front of Skull, and and often looking at Skull's mangled leg in wonder. But their their flirtation, for want of a better word, feels dark and quite disturbing in comparison to Eustace and Freddy. I I love that dynamic in fiction, where you, as the, the reader, are going, oh, God, no. Mm. Please, no, not that guy. Um, like I, I love uh, Hannibal. I'm a big fan of Hannibal, where you know there's that spider and the fly thing with Will Graham. Yeah, 
Eustace is a boarding school boy. And um, I did a lot of reading on boarding schools and the uh, absolute horrors that went on in those in you know the Edwardian period and up to full-on murders. I mean, the boys were killing each other in some of these places. But at the same time, there was this sense of the older boys, they are these wonderful, golden, you know, you must look up to them, you must emulate them, you must adore them to a certain point. You know, you were encouraged as a boy to do that and to also take any amount of abuse. Um, and that was the dynamic I wanted with Skoll and Eustace. And it's funny because you include that brilliant scene between Eustace's father and Eustace's father's school friend, who clearly isn't a very good friend. And you find out that Eustace's father has been quite badly abused at the very same school he sent Eustace to. And he's clearly a man who's traumatised by this, but he just can't deal with it. And then Eustace kind of, you know, rejects that dynamic by having a go at his father's friend. But then, like you say, he goes and meets Skull and buys into that very same dynamic. Yeah, it's um, the the onion skin, isn't it? They think mm. they call it the onion skin of trauma. You just keep on repeating and repeating and repeating. Yeah, Eustace does quite a good job of uh, telling off his father's school friend and then he just immediately trips and falls into the exact same dynamic. Uh, yeah. To come back to horror, because, you know, I, keep, yeah. <laughs> I, I weave the horror in and out of all the, uh, the the more quotidian stuff, but I mentioned that Skulls has mangled legs, you know, he's lost a leg and there's lots of other kind of uh, convalescing soldiers who come to the the hydro hydropathic spa did you say that's the phrase yeah, hydropathic. yeah. They, lots of other convalescing soldiers come there and they have various forms of body horror um, that they're carrying with them but your monster again in some ways seems to be a, a kind of dark shadow to that because he has strangely elongated limbs and this very weird gait and they are prime details to get a reaction from a lot of people you know I, I don't know what it is about weird limbs that freak people out so much <laughs> but it felt like he was almost a kind of like a, a dark shadow of these injured soldiers at times yeah and um I only thought of it just now when you were talking about all of the the limbs and the mangledness but um in the middle of writing this book I had to have open heart surgery um so I was mangled and uh sewn up and that uh, that is sort of one of the places that I ended up putting that experience I had to um, get that down somewhere well I, I did know about that and I was going to ask you about it actually um, <laughs> because I find it interesting that you've told a story about the war f not from the front but from a convalescent hospital essentially that, that, that the spa becomes that's quite an offbeat way to approach the the period and its events and I mean could you talk a bit more about your recent experiences and have I don't know what the timeline was when you when they happened when you wrote this but did any of that stuff factor into your writing of this book? Um, yes it did it happened right smack bang in the middle of writing it and um, I, I knew that I needed heart surgery and so it wasn't an entire surprise but um, I was sent to the old Papworth hospital which is an Edwardian convalescent resort so 
Ta-da! Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the hospital then, it's it's been moved now, um, it was full of photographs of these mustachioed Edwardian gentlemen in their pyjamas standing around, you know, looking miserable, trying to recover from TB. I think it was mostly TB there. Um, so that was useful because uh, also the old Papworth campus, it's surrounded by woodland. So I was actually able to get much more of a physical sense of living somewhere like that for an extended period of time. I was only in in there for 10 days, um, but I was right next to the woods with a big window open in my own little room where I was shut off from everyone and uh, very much aware that these are sort of Edwardian halls and I wanted to use all of that. Um, but mostly, actually, it was the sense of isolation and thinking, what does this do to you if you literally live here like Freddie? But then on a more visceral level, I had an awful lot of wound care to do. <laughs> like I had a I had a surprise bypass as well when I got in there. So they they you know they cut up my leg as well. Um, so I got a real sense of hobbling around on essentially one leg for quite a long time. Um, I still haven't really fully got it back, actually, that one leg. It's still a bit weird. Um, but I wanted, this is important, actually, I didn't want Skull's wound in itself to be a horror thing because I think there is a bit yeah. of a trap of, you know, oh, mm-hmm. he's he's disabled and therefore that's kind of spooky because I'm a disabled person and that's, you know, it's it's laughable. But without giving anything too much away about Skull, it's his attitude that's the horrifying thing. Yeah. It's the way that he deals with it. So that was me in the spring of 2019 hobbling around held together with stitches and a prayer. <laughs> So I don't. Sorry, I don't, I don't make, want to make you just go over this all the time. Because I know you must talk about it a lot in interviews. But this is a this is heart surgery that you knew you were having. This wasn't a thing that like a crisis that befell you when it was an emergency thing. You knew you were going in to have this operation. Yeah, yeah. What you know? What I'm asking what what is that like? Because that is quite <laughs> a major thing to be facing, kind of coldly and soberly. Uh, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> I I honestly don't know how. I don't think I could do it again. Hopefully I won't have to do it again, touch wood. Um, I think I just made a lot of jokes. <laughs> That's how I deal with most things. Um, just kind of soldiered on, really. It's that dreadful stiff upper lip How very fitting to the novel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But um, I'm doing really well now, but it is weird to think back Mm. and like, how on earth did I do that? Because you can't use your upper body for 12 weeks. So you can't use your arms to like pick up a pint glass of water. That's forbidden. Um, So you find yourself going like, oh, I I can't do anything for myself. This is Mm. really awful, actually. Um, So it does recalibrate your brain. And I did try to bring that in a bit into the novel with these people who've been very, very injured and having to just totally transform their view of themselves and their view of where they fit in the world. How? Did, I mean, could you still write in any conceivable way? Um, 
I, I had a huge crate of books because I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to have all this bed rest. I'll be able to mm -hmm. read. But my my uh, concentration was just gone. And I was on so much morphine as well. I was just tripping the whole time. Um, so I could, but the reality was I'd, I'd sit down and try to work for two minutes and then I'd go, I'm exhausted. I can't. And then straight into COVID. Yeah, straight into COVID. So it was just fantastic timing. <laughs> wow. Right. But so you were presumably sitting with this book quite a while then because um, you started it before the operation and then recommenced it afterwards. Did you did it change direction in any major ways as a result of what had happened or did you just carry on? Well, the most significant way that it changed was I had to get around the Spanish flu because I knew no one was going to want to read about the great <laughs> Spanish flu of 1917-18. Um, I mean, it does factor in, uh, but I was planning to make that a much bigger thing. And then we had a pandemic and I thought, you know what? I don't think anyone's going to want this. No. no. It's a weird thing, the Spanish flu, because like at the start when you said people don't really address the war in their own culture at the time and stuff. They didn't know how to address it. Yeah, I always think it's quite weird that the Spanish flu has very rarely been dealt with in literature. Quite often people just pretend it didn't happen at all. Um, yeah. And I think the same thing might happen with COVID. I think right now people are having their COVID moment and then in 10 years people might, might just be like, ah, yeah, we're just going to smooth over that a little bit and carry on as if it didn't happen. I think you're absolutely right. Yep. Whilst we're on hospitals... Um, I've got to ask you this. I read an interview with you from a good while back. Am I right in thinking you, you had quite an uncanny experience in the lower recesses of a hospital once? Oh, God, yeah, in Whitechapel. Would you mind oh, telling God. that story? It's, too, it's a cool <laughs> story. Um, okay, so the, the London Hospital in Whitechapel, I was visiting Whitechapel just looking at all the historical bits and bobs with my partner, and um, we had to go and get our train and we said oh it's it's the london hospital let's have a quick look in here because you know the, the elephant man and there's a lot of jack the ripper type all of that tourist stuff and we popped in and um we needed the loo so the loos are down the stairs in the basement and you have to go down these stairs that have a, a lovely old wooden handrail and as i touched this handrail i thought i don't like that I really don't like that, but you don't say anything, do you? So uh, I walked down these stairs and I went into the ladies and it was, I think, four, four cubicles. The, the place was empty. And when I came out to wash my hands, it was still empty, but there was somebody up against my back. And <laughs> like it's really weird to talk about it out loud because there was someone up against my back but there was also no one up against mm. my back but the worst thing about it was that I knew if I reacted in any way it was going to get a lot worse very very fast so I very calmly as much as I could washed and dried my hands and walked slowly because I thought don't run don't run, because it was like someone playing a nasty practical joke. It was like they were grinning uh, and they were waiting for me to react. And I thought, don't do it, whatever you do. I came out and I got to the top of the stairs and my partner was there looking a bit 
bit shaken and I said, are you all right? And he said, I have just had the weirdest experience. Can we leave? Oh. And so we left and I said, what was up? I didn't tell him what had happened to me. And he said, I was in the gents and I was the only person in the gents and someone came up behind me and pressed right up against my back. And I went, okay, <laughs> okay, uh, tell me more. And he said, yep, yeah, it was, it was like, it was like a drunk, you know, when a drunk wants to fight you, like a smiling sort of come and have a go feeling right up against my partner's back. And he said, I wasn't going to give it the satisfaction of knowing that it was terrifying. So I quietly got my things and slowly walked out. And now can we get the hell out of here and never, ever come back? And I told him what happened to me. And the way that the time worked, he would have he went in before me, so mm. this thing would have happened to him and then presumably come through the wall and done the exact same thing to me because it was in two adjoining rooms. So wow. that was horrible. <laughs> See, the version of that that I read didn't mention your partner's experience. That's suddenly, like, doubly creepy. Um, oh, wow. yeah, and he, he still talks about it to this day. He is not easily spooked, and he said yeah. that, I, that was like, it was honestly like it was a man. There was a man right up against my back and he was having a great laugh at my expense. So don't use the toilets at the London hospital in Whitechapel. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's just such a cool story. I mean, you say the thing that came to the wall. Are you of the opinion that it, that it was something as opposed to a psychological reaction to environmental I think stuff? it was something. I think it was something. Um, I... <sighs> I'm, I, I tend to take a Fortean response to this. So, uh -huh. like, you've experienced something that's kind of yeah. just accept it. But, yeah, that was that was horrible, and I would not go back there again. No, thank you. That's awesome. I mean, it's, I'm sorry it happened to you, but it makes a great story. <laughs> it's great, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you just mentioned a moment ago um, you take a Fortean attitude to things and your author bio says that you have an interest in fantasy history and 14 oddities which makes yeah. you my kind of cultural doppelganger at the very least uh, nice yeah we've talked about history and we've touched on fantasy so what about your fondness for fortiana what what are your passions from the world of the weird oh i've i've always always been a little bit of a weirdo um i was left alone with a lot of books as a child and that included my grandfather's medical textbooks and huh. uh, a lot of things that i shouldn't have seen as a young child amusingly right i i i had quite a sheltered upbringing like i wasn't allowed to see disney films but i was left alone with photos <laughs> of spontaneous human combustion like literally I, I had books on you know JFK's assassination mm -hmm. and all of these and it's like where was the logic there mum and dad yeah. um but my favorite oh I I love ghosts I I just adore ghosts I can't get enough if anyone has a ghost story I I don't care how wild it is just gimme um and cryptozoology as well because I I feel like I'm a bit of a cryptid myself hmm. you know i i look at these creatures and i go yeah mothman and uh bigfoot they're they're friends <laughs> to me yeah 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 i i feel quite i feel quite similar i'm a big cryptid nerd as i said right at the start yeah i just did a just did a, a patreon thing 
with the author T. Kingfisher all about Mothman. Mothman never oh. fails to make me smile. He's 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 a nice guy. I've got a little Mothman plushie that my best friend has made for me. He's hanging up next to me now, smiling. <laughs> How cute. Bless. Yeah. Um, well, let, well, whilst we're on to the, the, the weirder side of things, can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why? Yes, I can. So the book I'm going to recommend is Negative Space by B.R. Yeager. And um, it's about kids in a rundown American town who are all taking this drug, this strange flaky purple drug called Whirl. And uh, it opens up parallel dimensions, but it also rots your brain so you can no longer live in this dimension. Um, it's very heavy. It's, uh, you know, quite a lot of trigger warnings in that one, but I think it's magnificent. It's like... It's like a much more horrible virgin suicides, and I mean that in a in a loving, complimentary <laughs> way. It's a book I've been peripherally aware of for a while. It keeps popping up on my Twitter feed and stuff, um, and it, it does sound it sounds beautifully kind of late nineties, um, like you say, like the the, the virgin suicides, but it, it, that that disaffected, angst ridden youth thing. Yeah. Have you read Clay McLeod Chapman's Ghost Eaters? No. I I haven't read Negative Space, uh, but Ghost Eaters sounds like it might be in keeping with it. It's a, a book, again, it feels like a kind of Chuck Parnock, Douglas Copeland, late 90s, kind of angst-ridden horror naval gaze. It's about these people who take this kind of psychedelic mushroom that lets them see the dead and what the consequences of that are. Uh, and it's a particularly, oh. it is, a, like you say, it's heavy and it's a, a dark horror novel. So they sound like they may go quite well in tandem. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right up my alley, actually. Yeah, that sort of um, almost a fantasy horror take on like Dennis Cooper. That's, yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. that. Yes, exactly that. Yeah, I will, I will try and check out Negative Space. I'll, I'll add it to my ever-increasing reading list but it, do, it does sound my kind of thing it sounds like the kind of thing i would have been obsessed by uh when i was doing my post post doctorate stuff um so i will I'll, I'll give it a look over uh my last question verity what truly scares you oh now i've been thinking about this hard because i could either give you a silly answer or i could give you the slightly more existential answer Give me both. Uh, I could give, give you both. Um, okay, so my more existential answer is I'm afraid of pain. I'm not afraid of death because I've been dead with my, my heart surgery. I had to be dead for five hours, and it's really nice, actually. Um, it's the bit when you wake up that is mm-hmm. um, the worst. So, But the, the way that it affects my mind, extreme pain, is like, do you know the, the medieval mystic Julian of Norwich? I've heard of the, I I didn't even know it was a female. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She was an anchoress in in Norwich in, I think, the 14th century. So she lived in a sealed up hole and she had visions and would write them. Um, And she talked about God appearing to her and showing her all of creation. And it all boiled down to the size of a hazelnut. And that is what extreme pain does to me. It's like my entire self shrinks down to just the tiny tiny dot that I can't control and that to me is 
absolute horror. Like I can't cope with that at all. Um, but my silly answer is sloths. I absolutely hate them. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and everyone... really, that really took me unawares. <laughs> <laughs> everyone always laughs, but I'm like, look at them. Like they've got stumps for arms and then the stumps have like spikes coming out of them and they can move really fast if they want to. People don't know that. I didn't can. know that. Have you ever seen a they sloth can. in the wild? No, and I wouldn't want to. See, I went to Costa Rica once on holiday and I saw lots of sloths and I fell oh. deep in love with them because I think they may be my spirit animal because oh. basically they come out of the, they sleep for like, so like 20 hours a day and then they come out of the tree once a day to take a crap, climb back <laughs> up and go back to sleep. And I kind so of feel relatable. like that. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the, the life I really feel I should be living. Um, oh, no. And also, <laughs> there's a beautiful it? video where someone hands a sloth her baby that's fallen out of the tree and she just cuddles it like a human. It's the sweetest thing ever. But who am I to, who am I to question your loathing of well, of you know, I, I'm I'm Gibraltarian, so I am used to monkeys being everywhere, and I know that those things are untrustworthy on like a spiritual level. Are these so, the Barbary ape things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm used to those, and I'm used to people going, "Oh, it's so cute! Get a photo of me with the ape," and I'm just thinking, "No, don't do it, don't." Do it. And then their phone gets stolen. Yeah. See, don't I'm terrified of rabies. That's someone asked me this. They they, t- they turned this question around on me once, and my answer <laughs> was rabies. So I don't like going near wild animals in in tropical countries. Um, That's a, leg- a legitimate one, at least but, I think. But, but sloths, I made an exception for uh, because they're just they're really lovely. But you know, they. I read this really cool thing about sloths. Sorry, this is absolutely nonsensical, <laughs> but I read this thing this week that is really cool. That they basically think sloths may be the answer to all of life's problems and illnesses. Because See, that, they, that sounds like sloth propaganda. Well, maybe, maybe it does, yeah. But supposedly, and this could be absolute nonsense, right? But supposedly they move so slowly that they have an entire ecosystem living on them and in them because their um, metabolism is so slow that they're basically colonized by all manner of parasite. And, and they don't, they basically, they don't get ill ever. They don't. They don't die of kind of natural causes. They don't get ill. Um, so they think that if they can do something with sloth bacteria, they can basically cure everything. See, I don't need to hear that. I don't need to hear that the like, the answer to all my problems is sloth bacteria. <laughs> or even worse, that you know, when when the end comes, the sloth will inherit the earth. Exactly. Yeah, they're named after a deadly sin. What more signposting do we need? <laughs> Indeed. Right. Well, what a wonderful place to end that conversation. I'm so glad you told me your. I mean, whilst I completely empathise with the fear of pain, because who doesn't? Um, the sloth thing was a delightful way to end the conversation. <laughs> Listen, this is. I, I really enjoyed this book. It's. This is where I go into my serious voice, where I tell the listener what I think. But I enjoyed it a lot. It's incredibly kind of dense and complex and multi-layered. And there are so many themes we haven't even touched on or fully addressed. Like there's a whole excavation subplot where the, the source of the horror may come from an even older folk landscape. We haven't even touched on that. But it's good to leave the listener with things to discover. And more than usually, I'm excited to hear the listener's interpretations of, of your book. Um, But for now, Verity Holloway, thank you for talking scared. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
First off, what a delightful little ghost story that was late in the interview. You can easily see where Verity gets her macabre ideas. Maybe it all started there. I'd love to know if anyone else has ever experienced or heard of strange goings-on in the recesses of Whitechapel Hospital. Do let me know. Despite that real-world terror, Verity's novel is a horror story, sort of, by proxy. As I think we made clear, this is not a book that goes for simple thrills and chills. At times, I did forget I was even reading in the genre. And you know what? That's no bad thing. One, because it's nice to read a varied diet. You know, mankind cannot subsist on horror alone. But two, when the creeps do come along, they're twice as impactful. And that scene with the monster drawing a sword out of his own body like a spine, that's proof that Verity can do full-on horror when she wants to. But it is cool that, like so many authors on this show, she approaches writing quite indifferent to genre. It makes the work more surprising and, and more textured, I think, in the main. And I liked The Others of Edenwell a lot. It's not an easy book to devour, like I say, it has more than a trace of modernism, which can be a strange mix with contemporary writing. And readers expecting a nice, easily packaged monster story, you just won't find it here. But as a take on masculinity and history and British society at the time, it's a wonderful document that's full of heart and good writing and scares. It's also kind of further evidence that I'm, I am more interested in horror as an effect than a genre identifier. And I was having this conversation with my dad after that last It episode, because he was annoyed that I'd, <laughs> I'd laid out quite clearly that he hates the book. He was firm in telling me that he considers The Long Walk the best of all of King's fictions. And he says that specifically because he doesn't think it's horror. I say that, yeah, the Long Walk may be nominally sci-fi, but it is one of the most horrifying things King has ever written. And after all, as someone who runs marathons and ultras, the thought of an unending endurance event is a particular existential hell. Anyway, it got us talking about what horror is. And my conclusion is that the conversation should actually be about what horror does. Because that way you can find it in any story. There's almost always an element of horror, as, as there is here in The Others of Edenwell, but it doesn't have to be the main draw or the central feature. Horror, it turns out, is everywhere if you look for it. Anyway, speaking of Stephen King, we, we can't ignore what happened this week. The man himself tweeted that he listened to my deep dive into it, and, well, how would you react to that? First of all, a big thanks to Ali Malinenko and Nat Cassidy for taking part and having such fascinating things to say. I couldn't have done it without you guys. Like, literally, couldn't have done it without you. Imagine just me talking for three hours about the turtle. Wow. But also, thanks to all the listeners and the retweeters and the people who've supported this show for the last three years. I know I say it a lot, but it bears repeating now more than ever. You help me get my literary hero to listen to what I think about his book. And he doesn't seem to hate me. <laughs> that is a win of some magnitude. And it, it wouldn't have happened without you folks. So everyone, reach around, 
pat yourselves on the back for being the best audience a lowly podcaster could hope for. That said, (laughs) if you want to further support the show, you can like and subscribe and retweet to a like-minded friend. That all helps grow the audience. But also, if you can, leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever. It really helps. And the Patreon is there, like I say, with tons and tons of extra stuff for just a few dollars a month. Go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. And you can find me, if you want to chat, at talkscaredpod on, wait for it, Insta and Twitter and TikTok and Blue Sky. And I may try out threads this week, but Christ, there's only so much time in a day. Alternatively, you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. <sighs> right, it's been a mega week and I'm off because I've got two more interviews to do before Thursday. Big exciting names that you'll hear in the future. Next week, I'm back with another slice of pastoral horror. This time, it's Andrew Michael Hurley. Next week, I'm back with another slice of British pastoral horror. This time it's Andrew Michael Hurley and Starve Acre. It's a wonderful chat with a writer who doesn't get anywhere near enough coverage. So subscribe and don't miss it. For now though, make your bunk, shine your shoes and stand to attention because Talking Scared needs you. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.